in fragrance, obviously fragrance is not one of those categories where you're sitting there doing before and afters. But I think there is an element of there's a story to craft. There's this there's this artisanship to capture. And I think that was the part for Ellis Brooklyn that I really wanted. On top of having amazing ingredients and all the other great tenants from the other uh, beauty industry verticals. But just that for me and fragrance was important. Welcome to the Glam and Grow podcast. I'm your host, Takara Suet, head of partnerships at Wavebreak. On this show, we talk with leaders of beauty, fashion, and lifestyle brands. We dive into their stories, lessons learned, and perspectives on how the industry is ever evolving. Subscribe and join us each week as we glam and grow. This episode is brought to you by Wavebreak. Most brands don't email right and it costs them. With ad costs getting more and more expensive, a world-class email and SMS program is essential. This is why Wavebreak exists. We're the premier email and SMS marketing agency that helps brands take their retention programs to the next level. If you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co slash call. Joining me today on Glam and Grow is B. Shapiro, contributing columnist at the New York Times and founder of Ellis Brooklyn. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's like a rainy, rainy day outside. The perfect day for a podcast. That's funny. I live in sunny Florida and it's rainy here too. So <laughs> perfect. Look at that. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about your career prior to founding the brand. Um, you covered the beauty industry for the New York Times for over a decade. So I imagine you tested, smelled, tried everything you can imagine under the sun. So I'm curious about your background and what are some of the most interesting products to note and just how you think about products perhaps differently than the average person? Oh, gosh, I really have tried so many products. I'm actually sitting in my office right now and the background's blurred because it's just products and boxes and and things. And, you know, the thing, the thing about it is I actually love it. I love testing all the different formulations, but I also love seeing packaging, like how it all comes to life. And I really feel like between my New York Times experience and then Alice Brooklyn, I do see things probably a little bit differently. So with the New York Times, I would definitely say I'm a product expert. By that, I mean like the actual product, like what's in it? What's the ingredients? Like what's the delivery? Hmm, is that actually going to do anything for you? Like, I feel like I could call BS on things a lot more um, confidently, maybe than just like an average reviewer because that yeah. experience. And then in fragrance, obviously fragrance is not one of those categories where you're sitting there doing before and afters. But I think there is an element of there's a story to craft. There's this there's this artisanship to capture. And I think that was the part for Ellis Brooklyn that I really wanted. On top of having amazing ingredients and all the other great tenants from the other uh, beauty industry verticals, but just that for me and fragrance was important. I do think that once I started Ellis Brooklyn though, and really got in the weeds with launching product and all that, I actually got to know the industry so much better. I think when you're in press, as much experience as I have had at the New York Times, it just at the end of the day, you're only seeing the final product. So you didn't see that whole journey that I got to get there, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure it's been quite a journey to say the least. When was the moment when you were like, it's time for me to launch a brand? And and what? why did you choose fragrances specifically? 
So the funny thing about starting a company is it really is that moment like, wow, I feel compelled to do something. I don't think it's a casual thing, but I do think it is a moment in time where you're like, I better do this or at least try it and then see what happens. And so for me, I was pregnant with my daughter, Ellis, living in Brooklyn. I've been covering beauty and also celebrity for the Times for several years at that point. And I was sort of at this crux, like, what should I do with my career? I do think that when you become pregnant or you're going to go have children, whether you're whichever parent you're going to be, I think there are these considerations about what your career is going to look like. What is home life going to look like? What is that balance going to look like? And so I also took it because I knew I was going to have a girl. I also took it as like, hmm, what do I want my child to see me as? So I was thinking all these different things and uncovering beauty for so long that I was like, I have something to say in this specific space. And I have always loved fragrance. I think of all the verticals of beauty, fragrance for me is the most magical because it's most related oddly to writing because one, you can tell a story just by sniffing something, uh, which is so bonkers, right? Like you could literally smell your high school boyfriend's cologne <laughs> and be like, so oh true. my gosh. Right? Yeah, it's sort of that. like nostalgic almost. Yes, and it immediately brings up a story, right? It immediately brings up a scene. So as a writer, that's fascinating, right? Like we're always trying to be succinct. We're always trying to be less wordy at the New York Times. And for a scent that has no words whatsoever to be able to do that, that's, I always love fragrance. And then two, I do think at the moment in time when we started Ellis Brooklyn, I just was, I was seeing so many changing things happening in the beauty industry that wasn't happening in fragrance. And so I've always been very, very aware of like what I eat, what I put on my skin. And I've also been always aware, even before starting Ellis Brooklyn, of what we breathe in. And so that to me was that moment where I was pregnant and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I should try something. Of course, it's insane. Like, why would you start something when you're pregnant? <laughs> but uh, insane or genius. It's a mad genius. Okay. We can call it that. Uh, you mentioned balance. I'm curious how you were able to balance everything during that time. And then what was the development process? What did that look like? Did you have some of those relationships from your time at New York Times, or did you really hit the ground running? I think balance is an interesting thing. I think balance is something that we always are striving for. I don't know we ever achieve balance. I think that we're just kind of going after it and hoping it'll all work out. So I'm a, I'm a big time Google Calendar person of calendarizing these things in. And so I was writing full time in the New York Times at that point in the sense I dominated my whole entire schedule. So I would put little things in, like figure out where to get boxes, like in, in one of my tasks for the day. And I did know a lot of beauty industry contacts, but not necessarily the ones you need to start a business. Like I had no idea where boxes were made and I had no idea where pumps came from. And and a lot of it was asking people. And a lot of times the sources came from totally unlikely sources. Um, so actually, I got I was at a baby shower for a friend of mine. We were both expecting at the same time. And her friend, Jennifer Lacey Smith, will always be thankful for, was the packaging director for Oribe. And so that's, oh, wow. how I my, yes, that's how I got my box supplier was at this baby shower. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Were you solo at this time or did you have anyone like supporting you, helping you? 
No, this was totally solo. In the early days, I bootstrapped it. I was totally solo. I really thought that I was going to grow this thing slowly and figure myself out and not take investor dollars. I've seen so many brands come across my desk that I think there's a time and place for investor dollars for sure. But I think it's very difficult if you're taking it right off the bat when you don't 100% even really know maybe what your brand is. I think putting things down on a deck is all well and nice, but when it actually hits the market is really when your brand takes on a life of its own. So I really wanted to be alone at that point because, you know, yes, I developed two body milks as my first products, like two body milks, like what? <laughs> um, but I felt held at that moment because that was how I was wearing scent at the time because I was pregnant and I needed lotion and, and I love scent. So so yeah, I was definitely on my own, own at that point. It's very scrappy. You bring up a really great point. And I think we're finally really seeing the repercussions of you know what you mentioned in terms of funding. When you say, you know, I think there's the right place and the right time for that. When do you think really is that right moment to seek outside funding in a business? I think so. for us, I actually wanted to wait even longer, but then we were going to enter Sephora. And when we were entering Sephora, I believe the first entrance was 100 doors. So uh, from going from very few doors, I think maybe we had five doors to 100 doors. Wow, I needed capital. And I think there's two ways to go about it. I know at that stage, some people, if they're, if they're lucky, they will ask their friends and family to either loan them the money or invest in the company. At that point, I did take some early investors. They were not VC funds. I took on like an investor that was a manufacturing partner of ours. And that was how we decided to go forward because I knew I, I knew that supply chain was going to be a big deal. So that's the kind of first investor that we took. And then we did do a round on top of that. And so we did a friends and family round. I think for us, that was the right move at that time. I don't think that we would have been ready for a professional investor, which we later, later did take, by the way. We took a, a theory seed round last year. That was a pro round. So like pro in the sense that there's like funds in there. There's a board meeting. There's, there's things that we have to report in. I think that sometimes the industry, not just beauty, frankly, but also food, fashion, et cetera, et cetera, we get caught into this like, oh, my gosh, this brand raised X million amount of dollars and they're now, now playing com competition against you and they're so well funded. And, you know, it's super intimidating. And also you feel that like lack of achievement. You're like, oh, but I didn't raise that much, you know, but I think you're totally right. We're starting to see the repercussions of that. And I think there's been other cases earlier that maybe were smaller, maybe they didn't get that much money, but they, they they certainly got tons of money. And then what happened to them? Right. So I think there's a story that's sold to VC sometimes. And then I think that sometimes the VCs are expecting things from brands that are totally ridiculous. So I think you see both sides of the coin. And I think as a brand, you have to be strong enough to really feel those questions and like have an identity before you take on those kind of investors. Yeah. So going back to getting into Sephora, obviously, that's a, a huge accomplishment for a lot of particularly indie brands, of course. Did you approach them or were you fortunate enough to have them approach you? And, and what does your relationship look like with retailers today? Yeah, sure. So I am a huge proponent that there's always room in the industry for people. And I think I really got this amazing it, 
introduction to retail world because of the generosity of people, because of Jennifer Lacey Smith. And also for us, our introduction to Sephora was through Laura Slack and Net. So I was at a dinner with Laura Slacken and she asked what I was doing. And I was like, well, funny enough, I'm starting a fragrance line, you know, and we're talking about how she started Nest and all this stuff. And I totally did not expect it, but she was like, well, if you'd like an introduction to Sephora, the Sephora, they're really, truly best in class in the U.S. And and that was how it happened. She introduced me via email to her buyer and like the story goes from there. And and then Oh, because I was pregnant with my second child at that time. I never met Sephora team in person before the launch. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I just, it was just, you know, I think that when things are meant to be or when things should happen at the time they're supposed to happen, I think everybody in your universe will try to make it happen. I'm not saying that's the case. That has always been the trajectory of Ellis Brickman. We've definitely struggled uphill. We've definitely had, you know, different struggles. But at that point in time, it was just a very interesting, like, okay, we were meant to be there. And like, we ha- I have to make it happen, even though I was eight months pregnant, you know? So, so yeah, I'm super grateful to Laura Slack. And she's a class act. And there's other founders I know in the industry. They're just so generous and so classy. It truly is different than many industries I've seen. You go to really great baby showers and dinners, very effective <laughs> dinners. That's great. Do you, do you think the brand has also just in your network and things of that nature? It's really, um, you've had a lot of organic growth. Uh, sure. I think organic growth can only take you so far. And this was a learning experience for me because when I started Ellis Brooklyn, I thought I could rely so much more on organic. I think that if you want any sort of scale or any sort of awareness, I think that uh, sometimes you hear about brands saying that they grew organically and it was viral and it was underground and gorilla and all this stuff. And I actually think that's marketing or press, really, because if you really looked at it, they had all sorts of different campaigns to reach people. I just think that that's like a very old way of doing retail. I think in today you can't really survive or, or have really any impact like that. That's very interesting. So from a marketing standpoint, what has been most effective for you in terms of growth? I think today in marketing, you have to be, you have to do everything. And so I really consider, because we're smaller, uh, I really consider what is our maximum value for our marketing. So for example, I love the idea of doing connected advertising. I've been exploring. I think it's really interesting. What if there's a hot show on Hulu that takes off and you have the opening ad? But we're too small for that at that point. At this point, it's sort of like a hit or miss, but I could see it as like part of our strategy uh, in the future. I really think, okay, like what are the what are the platforms I need to be on? What are the platforms that could be interesting? And what are the platforms that are new that I like to try or test out? That's how I think about it. Yeah, and like even uh, I've read on the news lately, like that TikTok is has been banned in two states, I believe, or like they're exploring entirely. Like, do you think? brands investing in certain channels like too much or whatever the fact may be too risky long term? I don't think we can think like that as brands, to be honest with you. I think as brands to be relevant today, you have to be super nimble. If TikTok was shut down tomorrow, then okay, well, well, we have a bunch of content slated. Maybe we'll just move that to Reels. Maybe we'll look at Reddit. Maybe we'll look at, you know, Pinterest. I don't know. You know, like, Uh, YouTube. I mean, there's all these different platforms that are there. And I think as a brand, you just have to react. Maybe because I do come from media, I'm very comfortable with that. 
I'm okay with it. Like, I don't, I, it's a trend, right? Like, I remember when TikTok was coming along, a lot of brand founders were like, oh my God, TikTok, da, da, da. Like, there's so much content consumption. I don't know what to do with it. It's kind of, you know, lower purchase power. I don't know, you know. I think TikTok's awesome. Is the privacy stuff? I don't know, you know. Um, but as a platform, it's it definitely is a totally different thing. And I, I think it's exciting anytime we see a new platform almost. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Talk to me about your your hero product. You mentioned you launched with the, the body mist, I believe you said. And then what is your methodology or process for choosing new scents and just really making them on brand? So I actually launched with body milks. Milks. I'm sorry. I thought you said mist. It's okay. No, they're actually lotions. And so uh, our first real bestseller was when we launched our first fragrance collection, and that was with Sephora. And so I always knew that we were going to launch eau de parfums, but uh, first of all, it's very expensive to manufacture eau de parfums. So I wanted to wait till, you know, I had tested out a couple of things, tested out branding, tested out boxes. And because I was self-funding everything in the beginning, I just wanted to test, you know, and that's not something that's easily done where you're using somebody else's dollars. So, uh, so our bestseller is two different eau de parfums. One is Myth Eau de Parfum. And that one is one of the originals. It was one of the first four that we launched. And it's a scent that I actually designed for myself. So it was actually quite surprising. Uh, not because it's not a beautiful scent. It is, obviously, because I wanted to wear it. But it's surprising because I literally did not look at the market. It was like, hmm, is this going to do well? Is this going to resonate? Is this going to be, you know, whatever it's meant to be to sell well? It literally was. I created this scent for myself. So that is uh, one of our top sellers. It's like a clean, a white musk situation. And then the second one is called Salt Eau de Parfum. And it was, for me, another exploration in gourmand. So gourmand scents are a scent that relate to food. It's almost always like a sweet sort of scent. So it's like vanilla. It's like cake type of smells, like that kind of thing. And so me being a salty person, I was like, well, why can't we do some sort of gourmand take? But have it be salt. So salt comes in this beautiful blue bottle. It's very important yeah, of the ocean. And so and so those are our two best sellers. Talk to me about the, the branding process. Did you work with an agency or were you like the creative director per se or behind the scenes? Um, what does the involvement of the brand look like um, from inception to today? And, and what was that process? I find this whole branding vertical very interesting. So New York is full of branding agencies, full of them. And I approached definitely a couple of really big ones and I got decks and proposals from them. And I have to be honest with you, I thought they were insane. So they were so expensive, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You get I, one of the one of the proposals was like two changes. Another one was like three changes. And and that was it. And then and then there was your logo and that's your brand and that's your font. You get a little brand style deck you could call it a day. So I actually worked with an independent graphic designer. She was pretty senior at her previous job, but she did not come from branding. She came from, I think it was publications or tech. She came from that world. And we worked, I mean, I'm not actually, I'm very clear usually on what I want. Certainly there's times when, when I'm not, but for the most part, I'm pretty clear on what I want. And so we went back and forth on the logo. I knew I wanted an icon. I've always love loved brands. Yeah. I love brands that have an icon that eventually, hopefully 
you can have just that image and that with no word. Again, this goes back to the whole word thing, right? Um, the idea of can you convey something with no words? And so uh, if you think about Nike, you think about Chanel, if you think about Starbucks, they all have an icon. So I knew I wanted an icon. They knew, of course, I wanted the logo, but um, I wanted both pieces in our branding. And and yeah, it was very specific. So I definitely work with our, this. I still work with her, uh, this independent graphic designer, but at the end of the day, I don't know who would be creative director. Probably me, right? So, yeah. Well, I think for most people, uh, for most founders, you really do ultimately end up being creative director. But I find it really interesting when you, especially when you are bootstrapped, how you approach, you know, really growing the brand, especially profitably. So being bootstrapped, I'm curious how you approached, especially um, went back towards the beginning, how you approached allocating funds and where you felt was the most important like area to focus on so because i was bootstrapped i initially thought we were going to be a ddc focused business and because i didn't have all these funds to spend on ad spend especially in the early days when i was doing ad spend i didn't see that much really that much results because of the fact that we are fragrance. I think, again, if you had that before and after thing or, you know, you you showed a lipstick and you put it on, I think that's very different. I think with fragrance, you have to have wholesale. I just think it's extremely difficult to not have that that feeling, that smell, that experience of fragrance in person. I think you can sell online and our DDC today does really well. But I really think it has to be a 360 experience for fragrance. I learned that the hard way because of the fact that we bootstrapped in the beginning. I remember putting an ad through and barely making money off of it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so because there was this need to not be broke, um, I <laughs> I entered re- I entered a wholesale. And in retrospect, that moment was interesting because when I, in that first fundraise, when I tried to go out and raise, People were like, why aren't you in a DSC company? This was the era where it was all about DSC. And I told them, I would be really honest with them. Like, this is what happened. And most of them were like, mm, DSC is the future. No. And it's funny to see it circle back. And now it's all about omnichannel, right? And, and I just think like, sometimes VC get into these like holes of trends. And it's so ridiculous because at the end of the day, when I think of the really great brands that have come out recently, they all have their own path. I think that's a great point in, in so many ways, but definitely being omni-channel, I think that's the only way as like brands are really going to win. I think you're right. D2C was the focus for so long, and I think it's still ex- incredibly important, but it's definitely maybe losing its traction a little bit from that standpoint, um, especially if brands really want to grow. As a brand, marketing, or e-commerce leader, your focus should be on profitable growth in 2023. The best way to do that is by doubling down on your existing customers and your community. During the last few years, lifecycle and CRM has fallen on the back burner. As a result, many brands are missing out on key revenue because their programs are not optimized. At Wavebreak, after years of analyzing data and working across a highly diverse client portfolio, we found that most brands are primarily lacking in their segmentation and creative strategy. By scaling your segmentation, you can send more personalized campaigns and ultimately drive more revenue. 
And by optimizing your creative, your campaigns not only look better and more on brand, they convert better. As a full-service email and CRM agency, this is our core focus and how we help leading brands scale revenue by up to 318%. If you want to learn more, go to wavebreak.co. The link will be in the show notes below. Now back to this episode. You mentioned those before and afters, which I think is such a great point. It's so much easier, for lack of a better word, to sell a before and after skincare product or hair care product. How do you think from an imagery standpoint, marketing, and and I know you're not the biggest fan of like words, but I guess in terms of like selling online or if someone doesn't have the opportunity to have that in-person and store experience, what do you think is the best messaging to really evoke the feeling of the sense for a fragrance brand? Oh, I would say I'm the biggest fan of words. I just find it fascinating when there's an opportunity to tell something without words, I guess is the better way to look at it. Because at the end of the day, I'm still a writer. So I absolutely love words. Uh, so for telling a story online with fragrance, it's so different. So, you know, we tried so many different things and we really realized it's a couple of different ways. You have to approach it from both just breaking down the notes giving you a visual of like the actual flower, the actual wood, the actual spice that goes into it. And that's one way to convey it. Another way is to like do the lifestyle version. And this part I actually really like, which is like the get ready with me's. And so the get ready with me's are like, you know, I would wear this outfit with this scent and this is how it makes me feel and that kind of thing. And I actually think that is very, very impactful. When I personally watch an ad like that, it feels less like an ad. And so we do a lot of those as well. I think there's so many ways to tell scent in the way of how does it add to your mood or to your life as opposed to just the notes. Because the truth is many people do not actually know what the actual scent ingredient smells like. They think they know, but they actually don't. So they might have smelled one jasmine fragrance eons ago that they love. And they'll say, I love jasmine. But then if they actually smell the real jasmine, no, it probably doesn't smell anything like that. So I think that's one challenge online with selling scent is that many of the ingredients that the consumer just doesn't know what it smells like. So I think adding that layer of like, what else is going on? How does it make me feel? Is it youthful? Is it warm? You know, is it cool? Um, Those things are really, really helpful. What has been the most challenging part of building the business or perhaps the most surprising? I think the most challenging part of any business, because we're growing so fast, I thought if you're growing fast, that's all positive, right? Like that's just how fast you need to grow. I realized that growing this fast is really like at a breakneck speed sort of situation means everything has to go fast. Cash flow has to go fast. Staffing has to go fast. And I think that was one that one unexpected challenges I didn't foresee. And as you've, you know, gained traction and experienced some of these growing pains, like, would you say the biggest growing pain was adding to the team or fulfilling orders? What were, what was the biggest challenge? I don't know if I have a biggest challenge. Right now we are hiring and hiring is a challenge. I'll say for sure. Uh, it definitely is a challenge, but managing is also a challenge. I think that people element is really interesting to me. I think because I come from the New York Times, and certainly there are staff there, but everybody was sort of like an independent operator of your reporter, right? A lot of rep- reporters don't even go into the office at the New York Times. So I basically was an independent reporter. And you don't, you had your editor, but and you had copy editors. You had a team you worked with, but you were really out there on your own. 
And I think building the team at Ellis Brooklyn, making sure everybody's happy, I think those are really important elements. But also realizing sometimes you can't make everybody happy because everybody has these different wants and desires and life changes for one person. Another person wants to move over here. and You have no predictability. So I think that's definitely been a challenge. I don't know if it's the biggest challenge because I think there's so many challenges starting a company, but uh, but that definitely is one that I'm thinking about a lot lately. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to get a little bit less challenging in 2023, just as people really kind of settle back into like normal life in a in a post COVID world. I'm I'm curious myself if it should sort of become a little bit just sort of more steady as it used to be. So it'll be very interesting to see evolution of the brand. Does it look different today than when you first started, or has it sort of been a just a natural progression. No, it looks different. So not tremendously different, but in the beginning, I was thinking very minimalist, very chic, very New York, you know, uh, very black and white. And if you look at our early bottles, they are pretty much black and white and gold. And it was during the pandemic and maybe a little bit before that, if I really think about it, I wanted to add more and more color because I realized that fragrance is truly not a necessity. It is only about joy bringing. I mean, there's no reason you have to buy fragrance, right? Uh, it's only about pleasure. And so because of that, if you're going to go buy fragrance, don't you want it to be fun and the packaging to be colorful and experience to be lovely? And so that that from a visual aesthetic standpoint, has changed a lot for me. As you have expanded the line, um, what was your thought process in terms of which products to launch next? And like, what does it look like in the future for, for new products? Oh, gosh. You know, the funny part about new products is I always joke with the team that Ellis Brooklyn is like one of my third child that has a mind of its own, you know? <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> I'll give you an example. So basically, any eau de parfum we launch in the last few years had been a hit. And I think that rather thankfully, but but also it's funny because then we launch these other things like candles and they're like, they're just there. (laughs) So, and I don't know why. I actually think our candles are quite lovely. And are they a little expensive? Sure. But our fragrance also is not the lowest price point, right? And, And for whatever reason, it doesn't resonate. And so I do think that brands take on a life of their own. So when I think about product development now, it's funny because I almost think about Ellis Brooklyn as this like completely separate entity to myself. And like, what would Ellis Brooklyn launch next? And so we're really thinking about just we're focused on juice next year. We're focused. Juice, it means perfume. So we're really focused on juice launches next year. I think you bring up a really very interesting point, but I appreciate your honesty in that. Like, do you think it's also really smart for brands to recognize perhaps something that isn't converting as well and really think about, you know, discontinuing maybe certain products or like just focusing on like your core essentials in the future rather than like constantly trying to, you know, invent the new, so to speak. I think brands that are led by founders will always have unpredictable launches. I personally, as a reporter, but also a consumer, love that. But it's not the most logical or rational. And so I say that because if you're a founder, there's a reason why you started the brand and there's a soul to it. And is it always going to come down to dollars and cents? No. So I'm not going to say like, 
you know, next year we're going to be this like robot that's just spits out fragrance next year. I definitely have some other projects in the works of things I want to try out. It's just that I think I've gotten smarter as a business person in that, okay, yes, I really, really, really want to launch this new format, but maybe I'm not going to put the biggest amount of marketing spend after it unless I see some sort of traction, right? Like I'm actually really, really, really going to dedicate our budget, our resources, our time and energy to our A plus launch. I think in the early days when a brand doesn't really know itself yet, you don't really know what your A plus launch is going to be, right? I think that will that can only come with time and like who your brand is and what brand, what is the branding, right? That common question, like what is the brand? What is branding? That's what brand and branding is. I feel like people who have followed our business and our scent profiles for a long time actually know, like, okay, they're going to come out with, you know a new fragrance and it's going to be modern and it's going to be this and it's going to be a reinvention of the category which i love to do so so yeah i don't know if it's like you know we're just not that big big corporate company where i'm sure they're not able to launch these little experiments yeah and i'm sure you're you know building on you know your brooklyn story your founder story and sometimes you do have to you know think a little outside the box and sort of test these things and I'm curious, are you really leaning on your team for really honest feedback or are you really analyzing the data in your your customers and maybe some of your own channels to really realize what you think will be the most successful or what or what your your customers are really looking for? For a product development, you mean? Yes. For product development, I do not look that much outside. I I hear I do talk to my team. I definitely talk to my team. I definitely talk to my retailers, but we're, we're not like a crowdsourced kind of company. And I don't say that as a bad thing. I really don't. I, I think crowdsourced companies are a totally different angle, totally different vehicle. We are more like, okay, this is our vision of fragrance. And so if that's the case, I'm not really sure I should be looking at 10 million different inputs of information and data. Certainly, like if we have a bestseller and our one of our clients, right, you know, please make this in a body oil or something like that. We definitely log that. We definitely talk to the team and we definitely think, oh, maybe there there's room here or demand here for something. But we're talking about like a whole brand new scent. That's not that's not the way I think. And I, I love input, like I said, from our team, our perfumers that I work with. But I don't like the input to be so broad because it's overwhelming. Yeah, I bet. Um, as someone who is an expert in in all things beauty, what's one beauty or skincare trend you're really loving right now? Well, I love skincare. I'm trying to think like, what am I using right now? So I'm really, really interested in all the new ingredients in skincare that are super efficacious. So a couple categories of skincare that I'm super interested in is that I do think Skin tone correcting serums have gone light years away from when I was young and everybody was using hydroquinone. Uh, There's this product called Suspira that uses, I believe, a cystiamine ingredient, which has to do with amino acid. And it tackles dark pigmentation on women, not just women, actually, anybody with skin tone discoloration. This has been a notoriously tricky spot in skincare. Uh, is sun damage and also just hyperpigmentation. And if you have lighter skin, you can just go laser it off. 
or do IPL. But if you have skin that skin tone that can easily pigment, it's very challenging. So there has been all these new interesting ingredients that have come out in this category uh, that I'm super I've been trying a lot of and I've been going through it and seeing if there's a difference. And I'm super excited about that. I don't know if it's a trend so much as it is like actual scientific development. Yeah, that's super interesting. I've always been a huge advocate for IPL, but I'd be very curious to to try an alternative. IPL is amazing, but you have very light skin. So for me, when I do IPL, I have to dial it to the lowest, 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 lowest. And uh, and when that happens, all I get is a glow. I don't actually get my dark skin uh, spots to to fade away. So there's just been a whole host of challenges with anything like that for for women or not just women. Why do I keep saying women? Anyone who can uh, whose skin can pigment. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, looking back over the the entrepreneurial journey you've had thus far, is there anything you would do differently? Well, that's interesting. Probably, you know, uh, I would not have launched Body Milk first. <laughs> I'm glad you I'm glad you corrected me body milk and and why did you say that because the way I had formulated it it was really just an add-on into a routine and it wasn't the flagship product like didn't understand that when I launched it and then I soon quickly understood it when we launched our Oda Perfumes and realized oh that's a flagship product uh i was it was really just like this adjacent thing i should have launched i should have just went for it and launched the fragrances first and then launched the body milks as like an extra to it but you know i didn't know what i was doing in the beginning so it's okay but yeah i definitely would have changed that around yeah it's so easy to say in retrospect but and that's incredible that launching with like the wrong product per se you've still had so much success so that's that's awesome year one was very slow Yes, yeah. but yes, there was modern. Do you think you could have grown faster during that first year if you if you had launched with the right product, so to speak? Oh, a thousand percent. I didn't really understand marketing probably to like year three of the business, if I was being honest. What do you think like was that moment where you really felt like you started to really get it? So I have a lot of contacts in the industry. And then I was doing my press myself in the beginning until we hired an agency. And because I had known all these people, we got amazing press. But actually, I learned that press can only get you so far and the rest is actually marketing. (laughs) And the marketing was a piece I never understood because I had no exposure to it. So marketing was all learned for me. And now, obviously, you know, I'm super into marketing and it's a lot of times what I think about the most. But uh, but yes. When I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, this person didn't even know what marketing was. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I mean, people can't know everything though. I feel like it's so challenging for founders to, you know, be an expert at everything, you know, but marketing really is everything. I mean, you know, we've seen brands that really have subpar products that just have unbelievable marketing that are that own their industry. And then, you know, brands that have unbelievable products that, you know, really struggled. It's also. It's so true. Very interesting. Uh, what advice, beauty or not beauty related, would you give your younger self? I would give my younger self just more patience to mess up. I think I was really rushed. So one part that we didn't talk about was I actually started out as a lawyer 
I quit you know, that. I saw that on your LinkedIn. I was just like, should I bring that up? I find that so interesting. So you've definitely had a really diverse background. And you yes. went to law school and the whole thing. <laughs> the whole shebang, the whole wow. thing. So I, I was in such a rush because I was fearful if I didn't keep going or if I, didn't, if I paused, I would be lost in the drift. And, and the truth was I should have taken more, you know, starting out jobs, more ex- exploratory things. And it all ended up great. But it probably didn't need to do that. And I don't regret going to law school. I think it's an amazing experience. But at that point in time, oh, my gosh, like, think about, like, I went all the way through law school, then started a law job, absolutely hated it, and then quit, (laughs) you know, at 25. And so uh, that is way scarier than if I had just taken a pause after graduating college and taken some, you know, starting out roles and figuring myself out. So I would say looking back, I, I... was the I was the maker of my own torture chamber or, exi- or anxiety <laughs> chamber. You know, I didn't need to do that. I am so glad you brought that up because I think that really brings up such a great point. I think there's so much pressure when we're younger that you have to figure it out immediately. And, you know, a lot of times we're like pushed in, in certain directions. I actually did a pre-law program myself and very quickly realized it was not for me. So kind of similar situation. Um but yeah, I think that's great advice that sometimes like your life might go in so many different directions. And if you just kind of pause for a moment and really figure out what your passion is and what you want to do, you might find yourself in a very different place. So I think that it is true. It's totally true. I will say one thing, though, and I'm sure that you so we're hiring like a very junior position right now. And and I've been looking at the I take the first cut of the resumes before I pass it on to the the employee that's going to manage that person. And so I take the first look and I have two little girls at home. I have a six year old and I have an eight year old. And then I have some friends whose kids are going to college, applying for college, whatever. I will say this one thing for any young people out there. You know, I went to law school and then was like, oh, my gosh, it's not for me. Completed law school. Some of these people that I'm seeing have like two master's degrees. No work experience. I don't know if you've seen that in hiring. I have often. And and, and yeah, I don't want to say too much, but sometimes people really lead with their degrees. And while, you know, obviously we encourage education and that's wonderful, that does not make up for any sort of real world experience. Um, so sometimes I feel like for like particularly, I guess, Gen Z and, you know, be, millennial, whatever cross generation, there was this like, so much pressure on education, 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 and like cut to now. It's like, like I said, while we celebrate education, sometimes I feel like it's just, um, it just delays real life. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the only thing that could be valued like in hiring at all. A thousand percent, you know, that I would is hire so someone who actually never went to college before. Um, if they have like tons of experience and, you know, are really well versed in the role. A thousand percent. Like yeah. So young people, please. Uh, uh, yes, I agree with you. Getting too many degrees with not work experience backed up with it is just delaying your entrance into the world. I, I, I truly, I think that is such a good way to put it because. You know, on the one hand, yes, did I make a mistake with the law law school? Kind of, right? Like I rushed along, didn't know what I wanted to do, did that. But I would say whatever you do, end up 
like pursuing it passionately as opposed to this kind of strange delay thing I'm seeing in some of these resumes. Like, like, no, don't go back and get your second master's. Go, go and work and be an assistant, you know, be something starting out. I think our society puts so much pressure and value on education that it's sort of we're at this inflection point where it's like sort of starting to backfire, I feel like a little bit. You're probably um, right. You're probably yeah, I'd right. rather, honestly, I'd rather somebody like, you know, work it. I, I don't want to throw out any name, but any sort of job that requires them to have an unbelievable work ethic and like tenacity and really be able to handle different types of customers and clients and people that is equally as important to me as any sort of degree. So I think that is such a great point. Although I guess I would imagine going to law school really has served you. I'm sure you love reading contracts. So you're probably really good at it. (laughs) I would say the only thing that's translated. Yeah. The one thing that's translated is that I can manage the law firms that I, that work for LS, like uh, that work on LS Peflin stuff. (laughs) Oh my God. That's hilarious. Um, for my final question, what's next uh, for you and the brand, you know, and personally in your life? So I'm really trying to figure out this work-life balance for our team. And I don't know if this happened to you or your company, but one thing that happened during COVID is everybody scattered and everybody has all these different work situations and home situations and living situations. And we had offices in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And now we have no office. And then I went to go see this beautiful office up in Connecticut because a lot of people are in that area of near New York now. And it's just I'm trying to figure that out because I actually think that there is something beautiful in coming together. And I've never been a person to to really like stamp the clock. I've always been that person, especially at the times where reporters are in and out that you don't have to go in all the time. But I think there's something post-COVID that I'm like, hmm, I think young people on our team and also just in general, our, our team as a, like a, as an organization needs to see each other. So I'm trying to figure that part out. Um, our companies are on so fast. We're like doubling every year, basically. And so it's just really trying to catch up like, okay, on the one hand, yes, we're achieving these numbers, we're achieving these goals, and it's all amazing. But I just want to make sure that like life element doesn't get lost. So that's been a really interesting challenge in the last few months, I would say. And then personally, oh my gosh, like I've been, I, I feel like COVID, I feel like life, I, I'm a mom, but I also got divorced during COVID. So I have a boyfriend. Oh gosh, that must have been so challenging. It's not, if you want to talk about like life, okay. You know, um, I, I, I were, I'm a big believer in mental health and I wasn't that kid that grew up with therapy. Not that saying that that's bad. I'm just saying I didn't know anything about it. And I do see a life coach. I work with them on mental health and running the business, but also my life. And so those are the things I'm trying to figure out. And, and the funny part is since I started working with my life coach, my business had taken off because I realized that I was getting in my own way. So that's yeah, amazing. That's life. I'm glad you found the right life coach. That's great. <laughs> That's true. She works with a lot of entrepreneurs. So she was referred to me by another entrepreneur. So That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was wonderful chatting with you. For anyone who wants to find out more information on yourself and Ellis Brooklyn, where can I direct them? So we're at ellisbrooklyn.com. We're also at Sephora, which is our main retail partner. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to leave a review and subscribe to all future episodes. For show notes and resources mentioned, go to glamandgrow.co. This show is produced by Wavebreak. If you're an e-commerce marketing leader who wants to take your email and CRM program to the next level, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Wavebreak. Most brands don't email right and it costs them. With ad costs getting more and more expensive, a world-class email and SMS program is essential. This is why Wavebreak exists. We're the premier email and SMS marketing agency that helps brands take their retention programs to the next level. If you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co slash call.